Ed Robertson with the program. Note the following segment originally aired in August 2013. Hi, this is Nichelle Nichols, and you're listening to TV Confidential. Aren't we all lucky? And this is the way that Bronx Star has come to Washington, D.C. As we draw deeper and deeper into the nation's capital, the singing broke out spontaneously, and this is a singing group. Ed Robertson, welcoming you back to TV Confidential, a radio talk show about television. This week marked the 50th anniversary of the historic march on Washington for jobs and freedom on August 28, 1963, when more than 200,000 Americans of every age, race, and religion descended on Washington, D.C. to support the passage of the landmark Civil Rights Bill. The event was the largest demonstration for equality in the history of of the United States and a major turning point in the struggle for civil rights. It was also the day on which Dr. Martin Luther King gave his iconic I Have a Dream speech. The march on Washington took place on a Wednesday between 10 a.m. and 4 p.m. Eastern Time. And the reason why it was held in the middle of the week was that the march on Washington also commemorated the 100th anniversary of the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863. As you can imagine, the March on Washington was covered by all three major television networks. Our friend Phil Grace has put together another impressive collection of audio from that day, which we will present to you tonight as part of a special edition of the Sounds of Lost Television. And uh, let me point out, uh, folks, that this is from Phil's private collection. So, Phil, thank you on behalf of our listening audience for sharing this audio with us tonight. It's my great pleasure, and um, I uh, am very excited about sharing these audio air checks that go back 50 years ago. A very icon, historic moment, and a historic broadcasting moment. Uh, I might add that the three networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC, uh, did not do across-the-board preempting like uh, was done with the JFK assassination. For the most part, uh, ABC only had two interruptions. There were half-hour interruptions, one at 12.30 in the afternoon and one at uh, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and, and that was it until later on after the march. Uh, same thing with CBS. They were cutting in only three times at 10 o'clock, noon, and uh, approximately 2 o'clock, and NBC had on and off coverage. So it was not consistent. It was when something was breaking that they break away from regular programming. Which, again, uh, shows the differences in television coverage of an event like this today. An event like this today would be on 24-7, especially on, oh, cable, on a cable news network. But then even a few months later, in the aftermath of the assassination of JFK, they went pretty much wall-to-wall. Uh, -wall. Times were different. They considered... November 23rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, the demarcation line in television broadcasting with regard to how TV would cover live events. Up until then, it was unprecedented to do what was done during that coverage where all network and most um, non-network television was cut and uh, it was just wall-to-wall -wall live coverage. That, that was never, never done before. But going back to the march on Washington, the fact that they did cut in during uh, daytime broadcasting throughout that day, I mean, I mean that's, uh, that in itself was a significant news 
decision. And again, because it's it, it's a live event, there's it's it's not like you know someone's going to talk at a set time. I mean, it could be later on, so you could be cut you could be cutting in the middle of a program in order to uh, to pick up the audio from from a Martin Luther King or. Right, they were, they were focused all around the place. Uh, as far as media coverage, uh, media gave uh, great attention to this march. This was unprecedented for media coverage at that time. And the networks had all, forget this, 500 cameramen, technicians, correspondents, from all the major networks. And they were set all over the place, Washington Monument, Lincoln Mem- uh, Monument, where the buses were coming in. More cameras would be set up and had filmed the last presidential inauguration. And one camera was positioned high in the Washington Monument to give that dramatic vista that we all kind of remember where you see literally 200,000 people. And with that in mind, we're going to play a clip of ABC News correspondent Howard K. Smith more or less setting the stage for uh, not only ABC's coverage, but uh, television's coverage of that day, August 28, 1963. The advertised purpose of this occasion today, which is going to culminate here at the Lincoln Memorial, is to try to influence the men who work under that big dome at the other end of Constitution Avenue, the Capitol in Congress. Uh, If you were with us a moment ago, you heard Senator Everett Dirksen, the Republican leader in the Senate, sum up pretty much before the march has begun what the result is going to be. He has received the march leaders and he said that he still felt the way he did before. In general, he's for civil rights and he's going to support the president's bill. With one exception, he will not support the public, or he still has doubts about the public accommodations part of the bill, which would uh, require restaurant owners, hotel keepers, storekeepers, and so on, not to discriminate against Negro customers. That probably, this early, before the marches actually take place, sums up the political results. No one expected to change many votes or to hasten the Civil Rights Bill, which is being held up in Congress to a great extent by a minority who are not influenced by marches like this. That isn't to say that this march doesn't have a purpose, but it's rather less tangible than influencing votes in Congress immediately. The two things that have happened this summer are the Negro attitude has changed, he's lost his fear, and the white attitude has turned, if not for enthusiasm, towards resignation to the fact that the Negro is going to get his rights, and this march will probably increase and emphasize that feeling in both sides. ABC News correspondent Howard K. Smith on the events of August 28, 1963, the day of the historic March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, the largest dem- uh, demonstration for equality in the history of the United States. Audio from the private collection of Phil Grice of Archival Television Audio. Phil, uh, Howard K. Smith mentioned that the stated purpose of the event was to try to convince Congress to pass the Civil Rights Bill, um, which they eventually did. But another bit of backstory is that I understand... That because the summer of 1963 was you know, a very violent one, there was a lot of racial uprisings. President Kennedy was 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 concerned that the number of people who uh, who, who came to Washington would be so large and so possibly unruly that he almost put a stop to the march. Yes, there was a lot of trepidation with regard to this march not being a peaceful gathering of so many people, which it turned out to be, you know, approximately 200,000 people. I might just add that Howard K. Smith, who we just heard, 
he was one of the original Edward R. Murrow boys, and he went on to do anchoring at uh, ABC Evening News for a number of years, very prominent uh, journalist, anchor, and reporter, and he had just primarily gone over to ABC from CBS. As far as the march itself was concerned, it should be really re-emphasized that this was one of the largest political rallies for human rights in the United States history. And it was called the Civil and Economic Rights for uh, African Americans. And certainly, as you stated, there was a lot of enemies of the march, including uh, Trump Thurman, who we'll hear a little bit later, mm-hmm. uh, Malcolm X. He actually, he actually turned the march the farce on Washington. Uh, so going into this live moment on, on August 28, 1963, no one really knew what to totally expect. And yet, this go, and this this speaks to uh, the foresight, the people who helped put the march together. Some of which uh, we're going to hear from in the course of the hour. But a, another interesting behind-the-scenes fact: Bayard Rustin, who had been fighting racism in the United States uh, for three uh, since the 1930s, he was also one of the organizers of the March on Washington. He, right. th- th- this this gives this will give you an idea of the lengths that uh, he took to ensure that there would be an orderly crowd that day. He uh, not, he not only secured pl- uh, uh, plenty of payphones, water fountains, and portable uh, toilets along the march route, but uh, he had thousands of box lunches available. And and this is a masterstroke, Phil. He managed to convince the local police in Washington, D.C., to patrol the crowd in plain clothes so as not to intimidate or possibly incite marchers. A great strategy. No, you're absolutely right. Uh, Bayard Rustin, uh, he, he led the team. Uh, I understand there were hundreds of activists and organizers who he spread out uh, in Washington. He coordinated the buses and the trains. He provided the marshals. He set up and administered all the logistic details of the, mo- the march. Uh, it should be noted they were the big six, as they called them. It was Philip Randolph, who was the primary promoter of this march and, and the head person involved with civil rights at that particular time. You had John Lewis. You had James Farmer. You had definitely uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, Roy Wilkins, and Whitney Young. And, and those were the primary leaders at that time. A. Philip Randolph, at the time of the march, he was uh, a leader in the African-American civil rights movement for many, many decades. Uh, in fact, he organized and led the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, which was the first predominantly black labor union. And in the early civil rights movement, we're talking really early now, in 1941, uh, Randolph led a march on Washington at that time and convinced President Franklin Roosevelt to issue an executive order, and he made a lot of inroads. He, at the time, during the march, was the major, major proponent of that march in terms of um, how it was going to be organized. He was the leader. And with that in mind, is here is some audio from the speech given by Philip Randolph, August 28, 1963. Washington, D.C., the March on Washington. Hello, Americans. We are gathered here in the largest demonstration in the history of this nation. Let 
the nation and the world know the meaning of our numbers. We are not a pressure group. We are not an organization or a group of organizations. We are not a mob. We are the advance guard of a massive moral revolution for jobs and freedom. This revolution reverberates throughout the land, touching every city, every town, every village where black men are segregated, oppressed, and exploited. But this civil rights revolution is not confined to the Negro, nor is it confined to civil rights. For our white allies know that they cannot be free, while we are not. And we know that we have no future in a society in which six million black and white people are unemployed and millions more living poverty. Nor is the goal of our civil rights revolution merely the passage of civil rights legislation. Yes, we want all public accommodations open to all citizens, but those accommodations will mean little to those who cannot afford to use them. Yes, we want a Fair Employment Practice Act, but what good will it do if profit-geared automation destroys the jobs of millions of workers? Black and white, we want integrated public schools, but that means we also want federal aid to education, all forms of education. Philip Randolph from the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, August 28, 1963, audio courtesy of the private collection of Phil Grice. Boy, did he have a powerful voice. He certainly did. The March on Washington attracted other civil rights leaders and advocates for social justice, one of whom was Norman Thomas. We're going to listen to NBC correspondent Marvin Agronsky interviewing Norman Thomas right now. This is Mark Rogowski at the Washington Monument with Norman Thomas, the veteran leader of the Socialist Party. Mr. Thomas, you're a veteran of many efforts of freedom marching. What do you think of this one? This is magnificent, and I want to say it as an outsider, at least an outsider in respect of having any responsibility for it. We socialists have been very glad to help. But we're not running it, and the people who are running it are doing a magnificent job. I want to begin by saying that, and I want almost to apologize for being up here in a platform rather than marching, but my legs got old faster than I did. Now, it's much the most impressive thing I've ever seen in or out of Washington. Well, what do you think this one will do? What good will it be? With all my heart and soul, I hope it will do magnificent good, a lot of good. And its impression on Congress, by its size, by the fact that it's both uh, colored and white, by the fact that it's been so carefully organized as a peaceful action, it's an outpouring of a genuine sentiment. It's a kind of an answer to the sort of telegram that Nancy Chung sent to the Negro leaders in which they answered so well, uh, which said that it was, and would, insisted on interpreting this as if it were... Uh, a communist uh, affair. Uh, uh, the answer given by the leaders is magnificent, and this is a magnificent answer. Uh, what I hope is that the spirit of it will go into the localities from which people came. And what I hope is that it will make a very lethargic Congress act and act more promptly. 
Of course you don't win by one affair. But you do get a good start. NBC News correspondent Marvin Agronsky interviewing socialist leader Norman Thomas on August 28, 1963, the day of the historic March on Washington, audio courtesy of the private collection of Phil Grice. I might add that an interesting little uh, blurb in the New York Times, when uh, Norman Thomas died in 1968, only five years later, the Times called him, and I quote, the nation's conscience for social justice and social reform. And on the occasion of Thomas's 80th birthday, Martin Luther King wrote, and I quote, I can think of no man who has done more than you to inspire the vision of a society free of injustice and exploitation. Well, I can think of no man who has done more to raise the platform of, of my radio program than you, Phil Grace. It's, it, it is making available historic moments, such as audio from the March on Washington that makes a TV Confidential unique. And you'll hear more audio from August 28, 1963, after this quick timeout here on TV Confidential. Be part of our conversation. If you like what you hear, have thoughts on this week's program, or have an idea for a future edition of TV Confidential, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at talk at tvconfidential.net, talk at tvconfidential.net. You can also message us at facebook.com forward slash tvconfidential, x.com forward slash tvconfidential, or at TV Confidential on Instagram. And if you're listening to us on the TV Confidential podcast, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. This portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Front Porch Realty, the community of realtors in the Northern Bay area of California that is committed to finding the solution that is best for their clients. Whether you're a first-time home buyer or looking to sell or lease your property in Northern California, call Karen Strain at 415-886-7411. Or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com for more information on how they can help you.